I remember saying something uh, like this. Look at, all, look at all these people over here. You, you, you see them? They, they don't get it. They don't have a clue. They don't understand what's going on here. Do, do you see it? Do you see it? And maybe those weren't the exact words that I said, but I remember that moment crystal clear walking there in the cool evening sand and being serenaded by the, uh, the, the rhythm of the Pacific, singing softly its, its song in the background, and I held her close. And the thought crossed my mind that the passers-by don't have a clue as to the sense of significance and, and, and this pervasive joy that was being experienced just footsteps away from them. They were going about doing whatever it is that they were doing. I didn't know. I didn't really care. And every single molecule around us, from the effervescent surf that was sliding in and out on the shore to those concrete trash cans that were overflowing with the day's waste, everything was, was overlaid with this this indescribable joy. They, they don't get it. <laughs> they, they don't understand what we've got here. If you know, you know. Here at First Peter, we have a letter that's being written to a bunch of people who were in the know. They had been scattered all around because they were being picked on. Picked on for what they believed in. And things were getting bad. Things were getting tough. They were about to get worse. And, and either they were in the midst of it right then and there, or they were about to be uh, in the midst of a full-fledged, government-endorsed persecution. <laughs> and, you know, there's nothing particularly special about that. Uh, history has known countless people groups who have endured so much the horrors of injustice for one reason or another. And we've seen those pictures, haven't we? we, we we've read the stories or we've seen the, the, the movies. We've, we know what those faces look like that are just awash with this hollow despair. But there's something strange going on here with this people. Peter writes that even though they're experiencing all kinds of hardships, they're filled with this, with this joy. Peter says they, they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And to that, someone says, are you nuts? <laughs> don't you have any sense? Don't you have any brains? Are you so completely senile that you don't know what you're talking about anymore? you know, you know. What Peter's describing here is more than just smile-inducing. It's, it's, it's more than just circumstantial happiness. It's more than just a, a fleeting, albeit ever-intense moment of bliss. It's an all-enveloping, everything-impacting, worldview-altering, circumstance-transcending, beyond-words kind of joy 
where does that joy come from? How do you get that joy? Are, are these people just um, a Twitter-pated? Are, are they like that love-struck guy hanging out on the beach there? Where does that kind of joy that pervades the lives of Christians come from? The simple answer is this. It comes from knowing the difference that faith in Christ makes. Just like knowing what it is to be in, in love, that makes all the difference. Knowing what you have in Christ, it fills you or should fill you with this indescribable, pervasive joy. If you know, you know. Would you look at 1 Peter with me? Chapter 1, we're still in chapter 1. I think we'll be in chapter 1 for a little while here. And again, let's go all the way back to verse 1 so that we can get the whole picture here once again. If you have your Bibles uh, in, in, uh, or your smartphones or whatever, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? This is what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Then he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to, the res to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. <laughs> if they didn't know or, or had forgotten what it was to call themselves Christians, if they had somehow become distracted from the life-altering reality, paradigm-changing worldview that inseparably tied, uh, that's inseparably tied to being brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, well, Peter's going to remind them. Why? Because especially in times when the pressure is on and the heat is up, the world around seems to be circling the drain. It just feels like life is becoming the worst. Knowing what they have in Christ makes the difference between life and, and uh, death, death and despair. 
in life marked by this pervading joy. If you know, you know. Where does this joy come from? Pervading joy comes from knowing. First of all, you have a fortified inheritance. Paul, Peter writes, in this you rejoice. And that, that could and probably should be translated greatly rejoice. The Greek, used, the Greek word used here, it indicates that kind of next level intensity. This is next level joy. It's, it's secret level 10 happiness that has nothing to do with present circumstances. It's not like the shifting sea or the changing tide. It's, it's solid and it's sure and it's stable, and it's steadfast. One pastor writes, it's, it's supreme and abundant. It outshines everything else, and it, it pervades. It, it permeates and spreads throughout everything else. He says, in this, you rejoice. In what? In what we talked about last week. Do you remember? The differences in the details. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you have been reborn to a living hope that is into an inheritance that, that doesn't die. It never spoils. It never loses its unadulterated splendor. And not only that, it's being guarded. It's being guarded by God's power. It's protected. And not only is it being protected, but you are even now being held in this impenetrable, iron-hard, rock-solid grip of the all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, eternal God who set all of this up before anything was ever here. When you build a sandcastle, you, you, you either put a moat around it or you build a wall in front of it. Why? Because you want to keep out those waves that are inevitably going to come and they're going to threaten your sandcastle. When you frame up a house, you, you lay that pressure-treated wood all along the foundation so that everything built up from that point has a barrier against the, the moisture that will come up through the ground. You know, when you have important documents, you put them in that family safe. When you make some money, you put it in the bank. When you've, when you've got something special that you want to pass down to your kids or your kids' kids, you take care of it, you protect it, you polish it, you put that coat of wax on it. You do whatever you need to do to make sure it's in good shape when they get it so that they can be the ones to destroy it, right? <sighs> but... Measures we take to protect anything have their limits, don't they? The moats get overwhelmed, the walls give way, the wood saturates, it decays, the things that we hoped would have been impenetrable, well, they expose their limitations just like everything else. But not the security that Christians have in Christ. If you're in the know, then you know that you have a fortified inheritance waiting for you even as we speak.
The Holy Spirit has marked you. He sealed you with this unbreakable seal. The Apostle Paul wrote, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance, of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's reassuring, isn't it? That's joy-inducing, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, a fortified inheritance, a living hope fills you with pervading joy, if you know you know. Secondly, pervading joy, it comes from knowing that you have a fire tested faith. The Buddhist, the good Buddhist, knows the four noble truths and believes in the reality of suffering. In fact, all life is suffering. From the moment you're born to the moment you pass away, it's, it's suffering. You experience suffering upon suffering upon suffering. The second truth examines the cause of suffering. The third and fourth truths speak of the end of suffering. Here's how it can be done. Here's what you should do. Obviously, suffering is not a good thing, and you should know what you can do to get rid of all the suffering in your life. Follow the eightfold path. But the Christian looks at the world differently. Yeah, Christians acknowledge the existence of suffering. In fact, Peter's doing it right here in chapter 1. Suffering is the result of humanity's, humanity's decision to turn away from God. It's the result of our sin. And of course, ultimately, Christ came to bring us back to God that we might enjoy an eternity free of suffering. But here's the thing. Avoiding suffering in the here and now is not necessarily the Christian's ultimate goal. In fact, those who have this living hope have a worldview that tells them that the sufferings that they endure right now can actually be fuel for their joy. We see that in the few words that Peter writes here. He says, though now for a little while. If you are in Christ, then you are in the know that any sufferings that you are currently experiencing, they aren't going to last. They're just temporary, like everything else. They're going to pass away. Peter tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that they are light and they are momentary. Now, they may not feel light at the time, right? They don't feel light at all. But when you put them on the scale and compare them with the eternity of good that is on the way, they don't compare. Paul writes, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christians look at suffering as temporary, but they don't only look at suffering as temporary. They also acknowledge that God actually has a purpose behind the sufferings that he allows us to experience. Peter wrote, though now for a little while, and then two words, he says, if necessary. 
God uses trouble in our lives for all sorts of different purposes, doesn't he? He uses trouble in our lives to humble us. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul tells about this this thorn that he had in his side. Not a literal thorn, but something he was afflicted with. He wanted to get rid of this thing, but it led him to be more humble and dependent on God. In fact, he, he says right in that same chapter, when I am weak, then I am strong, he wrote. Suffering has a purpose. God uses trouble to point us towards heaven, doesn't he? (laughs) Jesus said in John 14, 13, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Sufferings, they, they point us to the greater good, the good future that Jesus has secured for us in overcoming the world. God uses suffering to, uh, to allow us to share in the sufferings that Jesus endured that we might also share in his glory. That's Romans eight seventeen. He uses it to give us an opportunity to help others. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. He uses it to course correct us from going down the wrong path towards living a life of sin. And he leads us often through suffering to confess that sin and come back to him. It was suffering, was it not, that brought the prodigal son to realize, I am not in a good way. I need to go back to dad. And that is exactly what Jesus taught in Luke 15, 16. God uses suffering to strengthen our faith in God. As we bend our knees and we cry out to him for help and we trust him that he's going to get us through. Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Something is, suffering is not just something to get rid of. <laughs> Those who are in the know know that God actually uses suffering for good purposes in our lives. And they say right alongside J.C. Ryle, health is a good thing. Yeah, we wish we were all healthy. Health is a good thing. The sickness is far better if it leads us to God. What Peter points out here in verses 6 and 7 is that God actually uses suffering for something very, very important. He uses it to open our eyes to see whether or not our faith is the real deal. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Here's the reason. So that the tested genuineness Of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When when the assayer seeks to determine the purity of the gold, he or she puts it through the fire. It's melted down. All the impurities are separated out to determine just how much gold we have here. How pure is this sample that I've been given here? When when Christians walk through seasons of suffering or hardship or trial, the genuineness of their faith, their hope, their trust in God, that's put to the test. (laughs) Will they continue to look to Him to be their strength? Will God be the one they're looking to to provide all that they need? Or will they crack under the pressure? (laughs) Will they curse him? 
Will they turn? Will they run after all those inferior things that promise to take care of them, though none of them ever will? Man, what an incredible thing it is to find yourself at the moment of desperation where you could do nothing else other than fall on your knees and cry out to God for help. And then after he's brought you through it, to look back and see, you know what? My hope actually was in him. It wasn't God. I think there's real faith there. There's evidence there. I was talking with someone just this past week about our church. So many things our church has been through in the past few years, financial hardship, COVID, COVID confusion, buildings flooding, staffing needs, people sick, people hurting. The list goes on and on and on. And yet through it all, I have seen a people whose hope has been proven time and time again to be not in their own strength, not in the government's strength or wisdom, not in their bank accounts or anything else, but in God. After they had been thrown in prison for preaching the, the good news of Jesus Christ, Acts 5.41 tells us that Peter and the other apostles, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, that is, for the name of Jesus. These were the same guys that Jesus time and time and time again pointed out, you of little faith, how could you not believe when he said that when he was with them? But what an awesome thing for them now to see that their faith had grown to the point of carrying them through some really tough stuff. And that brought them joy. Do the hard things you experience in your life fill you with that same kind of joy? Do they tell you that your faith has been fire-tested? And gold eventually breaks down and it passes away. Faith that has been fire-tested and proven genuine doesn't die. That's something to write home about. <laughs> That's something to rejoice over. That's something that's far more valuable than any precious metal has ever been. If you know, you know. Third, pervading joy. It comes from knowing that you're headed toward a future glory. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back, and he is revealed as the, the victorious Lord that he is, and we're finally standing there in his presence, there are going to be rewards. 
Now, every time a Christian endures suffering, casting their cares on God, looking to him for their their deliverance, continuing to trust him, even worship him through those tough times, that points to this awesome work that God has done inside of them. That doesn't happen apart from him giving them faith to believe, the faith to endure, the faith to keep looking towards the day when they're finally going to be with him. I've had people ask me, why is God allowing this to happen to me? I don't know all the answers to that. But I do know this, that every moment that you go through trusting him, looking to him, he gets credit for that. He gets the glory. It's kind of like a, a little like a levee that continually takes that beating from the storm, pounding against it over and over and over again. And as it does, and as it holds up, it, it testifies in a way, doesn't it? It testifies to the, the skill and the ingenuity of the designer and the builders. And in the same way, your faith that endures suffering, it testifies to God's work in you. It's an amazing thing. God gets glory for that. But Peter's not talking about that here. He's not talking about God getting the glory for your faith that is proven here. In these verses, he's talking about praise and glory that's going to be given to Christians who endure. This is mind-blowing to me. That God has done this incredible work in rescuing us, in reuniting us with himself, transforming and equipping us to be people who actually represent him here on earth and continue the work of Christ. But he's actually doing this inside of us, and and, and yet we're going to get glory for this? How does that even make sense? It doesn't. If, if, there's, if anything that is good inside of me has been produced solely because of Jesus Christ, then how should I get any credit for it? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Then Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If God is the one who saved me by his grace and is also the one who's responsible for creating me in Christ to do the good things that he has for me to do, then shouldn't he get all the credit? He should. But because of his unbelievable goodness, he actually shares that praise and honor with you and I as well. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. In the parable that Jesus told of the servants who had been given the talents. You remember there was one servant who had been given five talents. And he took those talents and he went out and he strategically used them. And he came back with more. And Jesus said, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of of your master. 
The same thing happens to the, the, the guy who's been given two talents. God is going to reward those who have been faithful. Christians who are experiencing all sorts of tests, all sorts of trials right now, need to know that there is being stored up for them a future reward, future glory. Along with Paul, their goal is to be able to say, I've fought the good fight, finished the race, I've kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. With Peter, they look forward to the day. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A Christian's pervading joy, in part, comes from knowing that they're headed toward future glory. If you know, you know. Fourth, pervading joy comes from knowing that you have a, a fellowship with Christ. When we began this series a few weeks ago, we noticed that Peter, the most prominent figure in the first four books of the New Testament other than Jesus, he's the first follower of Jesus. He's the one that seems to have become a leader of sorts to all the other disciples. He followed and learned from Jesus directly. Actually, for three years he did that. And yet, other than Judas, Peter is the one who failed Jesus in the biggest way. Not once, not twice, three times Peter's faith fails him as he denies even knowing Jesus. I wonder if that's why Peter seems to marvel here <laughs> as he writes to these people who are suffering for their faith in Christ. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. I saw him, and I loved him. You have not even seen him. Though you do not now see him in all the things that you are going through, you don't see him. I saw him when I went through some hard things. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. One of the great sources of joy for those who have placed their trust in Jesus is, is that they have not merely bought into a religious system. It's not that they have embraced a lifestyle of following a bunch of do's and don'ts, hoping to somehow earn God's approval. No, they rely on the work that Christ has already accomplished, and they begin a journey now of coming to know, love, and trust Him all the more. You may have heard it said that being a Christian is not about a religion it's about relationship. That's exactly right. And that's one of the things that fills Christians with this inexpressible, glorious joy. And they're not just in the process of becoming more devout. They're actually coming to know more and more what an incredible thing it is to know the one who made them, who loves them, who saved them, is prepared a place for them to spend eternity with him. As I walked the sand holding the hand of that girl who was going to become my wife, 
I knew that there was something special happening. After a long wait, many years of, of thinking that I might never find someone who could uh, stand me, let alone uh, decide to spend the rest of their life with me, here she was. <laughs> Where did this come from? This is all so sudden. <laughs> something was, was happening. Something was, was growing. Something was building. An entirely new chapter of life was opening. Even though Christians today haven't seen him, they are ever growing in their love and trust of him. And that fills them with this pervasive, unshakable joy. Finally, pervading joy comes from knowing that you are experiencing the fruit of salvation right here, right now. Peter writes to these Christians, you are, he writes, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's easy for us to think of salvation as something that is, that is, that is not yet. It, it, it's out there. We're looking forward to it. It's, it's coming, not here yet. Someday we're going to get there to that paradise that where we're going to be with our Savior forever. Yes, that's going to be good. That's what we're looking forward to. And yet what Peter is suggesting here is that there are aspects of our salvation that we are experiencing right here, right now. Even though they're on the run even though they're suffering for the very things that they believe, even though they're hard-pressed on every side, they're filled with this incredible joy because they can see the work that Christ has begun in them, and that's actually making a difference in their lives right now, where once they would have been thrown into some sort of deep depression by the loss of their stuff or by the crushing of their dreams, now they're holding on to hope for what is to come. Where once they would have been fighting and clawing and lying and hurting others to get ahead because of what Jesus has done in them, they're loving each other, giving to each other, helping others in need. Where once they were enslaved to all kinds of desires that were welling up within their bodies, they were running after anything and everything that they thought was going to bring them pleasure but was actually destructive, now they're saying no to those things and living it away that honors God. Where once they were plagued with guilt, now they're walking in forgiveness. Once they felt isolated and alone, now even though they're scattered, they have this new identity as God's people. Once they were walking around in darkness and confusion, and now they've stepped into Christ's marvelous light. Once, once they looked around at a world caving in on itself. They were overcome with discouragement. And now they're able to see it all through the lens of God's word. And they're filled with this inexpressible joy. Sure, there was a day that they were looking forward to, but what they had in Christ right then and there made all the difference. Right then and there. What about you? 
If you know, you know. Are you in the know? Do you know what it means to not just know about Jesus, but to actually know him and to be known by him? Have you come to that point where you've, you've, you've let down your defenses, you put an end to your running, and you've confessed your need for forgiveness, and you've turned your, your life away from doing it your way and surrendering it to Jesus and trusting him and doing it his way? Have you come to know what it is to have a life marked with pervading joy? It is not dependent on circumstances. You can. There's no better time to begin than right now. And I want to invite you in the quiet of your heart just to say, Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've gone my own way and done my own thing. In fact, I've been proud of it. I've lived a life of rebellion against you and deserve to be forever separated from all that is good. But I know that you sent Jesus to endure the punishment that I deserved. He took my place. Thank you for making a way for me to be forgiven. For me to be washed clean and brought back to yourself. I trust in what Christ has done. I give him my life. Give me a hope and a future. Fill my life with that pervasive, inexpressible joy. And for those of us that have placed our trust in Jesus Christ already, do you know what you have in him? Do you live each day in light of the reality that you have a fortified inheritance? that your faith is being fire-tested, that you're headed for future glory, that you even now have fellowship with Christ, and that you right here, right now, are experiencing the fruit of your salvation. If you know, you know. My friends, it's very easy to lose sight and let the difficulty of the day-to-day -day circumstances define our lives. Let us say no to discouragement, no to fear, no to moping, no to frustration, no to saying, woe is me, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Set our sights on things above, not below, and let the world wonder at this strange, pervading joy that flows from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we 
Our hearts are heavy, Lord, for the things we see on the news right now. And if we strip all politics away, we see and recognize that there are people in our world who are suffering greatly. We see injustices being done. We know that sin is motivating so many hearts. And Lord, while we know that there are discussions to be had and decisions to be made, Lord, we know that the most important thing for everyone caught up in suffering, the answer is Jesus. May they find their hope in you. And Lord, may you intervene and work powerfully to bring an end to this suffering and the suffering that exists all around our planet. Lord, those seated here this morning and standing with me here on this stage represent those who are enduring even now. Lord, may our hope be in you. But Lord, may even more than that, may we be in awe of the present reality that we are in your good grip if our trust is in you. Lord, fill us with an inexpressible, glorious, pervading joy that doesn't make sense to people who are not in the know. Would you build your people, fortify your people, strengthen your people, infuse your people with a joy that cannot be touched by the troubles of the day. We continue to look to you, trust you. We long to know you more than we do already and love you ever more intimately. And Father, for those who have not yet cross that line and place their trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would move them to do so. For this is where it's at. This is what is good. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in the mighty, strong, loving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.